The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Angelique Mooring, founder CEO at GainX, to today's show. GainX is a machine learning platform that helps corporates accelerate global restructuring, transformation, and growth, powering an understanding of, of organizations that's simply not possible without this extraordinary technology. So, uh, Angelique, a very warm welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just kicking things off, you were based, in fact, indeed, are, are still based for much of the year in Canada, but you launched your company from scratch as a global enterprise with an international HQ in the UK. Now, I'd love to hear more about the thinking behind your global strategy, especially in view of uh, some of the concerns around Brexit. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to, I'll hold the Brexit piece for a minute. As a Canadian, I think just inherently there's a lot of similarities between the UK market and the Canadian market. The UK market, though, has a fantastic reach into Europe. I weekly get asked why I would not put my international headquarters for a technology company in California or Boston or New York. And the honest answer is it's very easy to take a flight from Toronto to any of those places and have that connection into the UK. It's much, or sorry, into the US, much more difficult, I think, to do that. There was a couple of things that kind of came to mind that I was thinking about. One is I've lived in six countries and across 25 cities. So I'm international in my DNA. I wanted to be able to work with people who saw the world from an international perspective. So for example, in my previous experience, when I would be working with multiple global business units, if I took any of them and, for example, out of Britain and put them in, let's say, France, they would talk about love, wine, cheese, and software. If I put them in Germany, they would talk about beer gardens, processes, and software. If I put them in the US, they would talk about baseball, beer, and software. So they were, what I'm trying to say is they were very adaptable. If I took the Americans though, and I put them anywhere, they would talk about baseball, beer, and software. And so it's not that I don't do business in the US or I won't do business in the US, but building that entity within the US by its nature, in my experience over 25 years, has it as a sort of a standalone business unit that operates obviously quite profitably in a big market, but I find the fluidity between Britain and the rest of the world a huge advantage as a technology company. I did it quite consciously. It's certainly culturally a better fit for me as well. But I do like the access to talent both here and in Europe and the diversity that I get here. How about Brexit, Angelique? Is that uh, a concern for you at all? Honestly, not really. Because of the nature of what we do, I mean, we're helping large organizations, some of the biggest companies in the world, try to transform and navigate this new economy that we're all finding ourselves in. So it's almost an advantage because the sense of urgency over here to change is palpable. Whereas in Canada, there's really, there's not a whole lot that 
has that sense of urgency where Canadians or Canadian companies feel, you know, a desperate need to change. There are some markets like the energy market that certainly does more than the financial services market. But I'm not finding Brexit to be something that's negative. I do hear about the displacement of talent. But again, when you look at the population here, I'm not finding it difficult to find really top-notch talent either. So yeah, I'm still all positive. I think regardless of which way it lands, GainX will be doing okay. I do hope, however, that it's something that can be resolved soon so that we can move on as an economy to bigger and better things. I uh, 100% agree with that, Angelique. (laughs) Okay, let's move on from Brexit. What are the biggest challenges that you've faced being a female founder, raising money in a male-dominated industry, and how have you overcome those challenges? Ah, yeah, that's a really big loaded question, isn't it? So I think I think I should probably put out some data first prior to talking about what those challenges are, because I don't think it's an isolated thing for Angelique. I think you know, depending on on who the publisher is and where the research is done, women are getting access to anywhere from two to roughly 7% of all capital that gets raised in G7 countries. And regardless of what end of the spectrum that is, it's pretty shitty. Sorry, I know that's a very impolite word, but it's ridiculous that we're only getting access to that much capital, particularly when you're we're seeing over and over again that women-led companies tend to outperform male-led companies. So it's astounding to me that the math is still not working out for greater access to funding. And I think one of the challenges that I'm seeing is not only do I have to find a needle in a haystack to try to get the funding to women-led companies, I also happen to be running an AI company and there's not many of us doing that. You know, there's certainly a bend towards things like food and fashion and HR which are all great. I mean, the women that I meet running companies tend to be phenomenal powerhouses. But the concept a woman who can operate in sort of finger quoting high tech also seems to be something that people find difficult. I just was presenting at an investor evening maybe about a month ago here in London. And, you know, they picked the best investor or sorry, the best pitch and we got the best pitch. And a gentleman said to me, you know, when I first met you, when I first saw you go up and then I met you, I wouldn't have thought that you work in AI and high tech. <laughs> and I found that fascinating, right? I'm just like, why would that come out of your mouth? Um, <laughs> you know, there's a fair amount of unconscious bias. I've had some men claim that there is no way that their investment companies or their firms are biased. And, you know, when I push them to give the numbers of how many investments they've made, it tends to fall between that two to to 7%. So we need to break those barriers down. One of the ways that I've solved it, which, you know, I kind of have to tuck my chin in and lower my head a bit because I did try to fight the battle many times with just me up there and would get the what's your work-life balance like or your husband must find it very difficult that you travel so much or I assume your kids are grown or that you don't have any conversations happening which quite literally died 100% when I put a man out in front of me. So I hired a guy to join my team who is phenomenal. He's one of the best in IP strategy in the world. He's a phenomenal strategist around go-to-market and expansion. 
And he happens to be quite good at fundraising. And it's been disappointing but exciting to see how it's turned the tables. That's kind kind of of shocking, but maybe looking at the trends in the industry, maybe not so surprising. I think it's going to be worth adding one thing because I think there is a very positive note to it. There are a lot of big companies out there. So we work closely with PwC, having gone through their female founder program, and we work closely with Microsoft. We work closely with the London Stock Exchange Elite program. There are a lot of organizations that recognize the benefits of diversity in our economy across many channels. And there are a lot of us women who are successful carving out the way, who are quite willing to go back and bring other women forward with us. So I'm actually very, very optimistic um, sort of for the next generation of female founders coming through to move that needle beyond the 2 to 7%, as well as to change the dialogue. So instead of, you know, what are the, the biggest challenges in your company? It's, you know, tell us how you're managing your revenue growth and see growth over the next three to five years. Because we kind of get asked different kinds of questions as well. And I do see that changing. So I don't have a chip on my shoulder, but I am learning to um, play, I guess, play the sport with the proper people on my team at the moment. Nice clarification and uh, good luck moving the needle and changing the dialogue. So when we last spoke, you described how you came up with your concept for GainX during um, a uh, strategic retreat in a luxury resort. Now. I'm sure there are many people listening who'd love to start a company in that environment. So uh, please do walk us through the luxury resort ideation of uh, of GameX. Love to hear more about that. You know, I would think it's this was over six years ago. So I would think today, for those people out there that are thinking about, should I start my own company? The amount of noise in our lives today is only escalating. And, you know, six and a half years ago, the amount of noise in my life was, it was just phenomenal from taking care of an elderly parent to having young kids in sports and schools to my husband traveling quite a bit at that time as well. And, and I realized that I had made the decision to start a technology company, but I needed the time and the space to think about what kind of platform do I want to build? And how do I assure that I can articulate the market problem that I'm trying to solve in a way that will land successfully? And to be honest, there was just too much noise around me to grab much more than, you know, maybe a half an hour to a couple hours at a time. So I decided to take what I called my strategic Angelique retreat. And I did that because as an executive who's worked in large companies, I and in a, you know, a long ago, previous life as a consultant, I decided to kind of treat myself as one of those executives that I would be trying to help. So we would take these, you know, I'm sure anybody who's worked in a big business in any kind of management level is familiar with the go off site, bring everybody together, tackle the problem, deconstruct it, build it back up with a solution. So I decided to do that and pretend that it's actually not my business, but that I'm the client. And I went to a retreat in Ontario, Canada. I'm just outside of Toronto. That's like this fantastic French resort. It's called St. Anne's. I'd recommend it to anybody in the world. You're overlooking Lake Ontario and there's French gardens everywhere. And I spoke all of five sentences in roughly 
four to five days. And it was, no, I would not um, like dessert. Thank you. And yes, I would like my coffee black, please. (laughs) I used that quiet, quiet time. And I brought, you know, those old fashioned tools of pencils and sticky notes and magazines to spark ideas. My favorites, you know, Stratton Business and HBR and all sorts of different things that would continue to spark those ideas. And I filled this suite that I had with hundreds of notes, sticky notes, answering those critical questions that were important to me. What's the market problem? What am I really good at? What am I good at what I really hate doing? (laughs) Which is an important thing to note because then it tends to fall down the priority list and it could be a real detrimental thing inside of a small company or a startup. Anyway, Long story short, I, by the end of those several days, had you know narrowed it down to a few sticky notes with a core vision, clear understanding of what I was going to do, my customer journey in my head and raring to go. And to be quite honest, I haven't looked back. I mean, I've gone back to that place when I need uh-huh. some quiet again, but I hired my UX specialist immediately after that to pull that customer journey out into a language that speaks both business and developers, which I would always recommend before you hire development, hire somebody in UX. And it's been phenomenal. I mean, we've never had anything but positive feedback on our our product. Critical feedback in the early days, but it's always been a positive roadmap for the platform that we've evolved to and have today. Awesome. So the advice from Angelique is ditch the management consultants and book yourself into a five-star resort, switch off all the tech. I'm sure that's a, a lovely way of, uh, of spending some money. Maybe the uh, management consultants listening into this show will be yeah. disappointed with that guidance. <laughs> that's fantastic. Much, much cheaper, I guarantee you. It's much cheaper than those management consultants. You know, I think... You'll probably agree when you have an idea that's sort of seeding inside of you, inside of your mind and your heart, you probably have 90% of those answers anyways. So just go find the quiet to pull them out and then jump because you'll never have 100%. Great advice. Let's talk about Microsoft for a few moments. Now, you've expertly leveraged your relationship with Microsoft and many startup founders I speak to struggle to build and execute partner strategies with large global corporates. So how did you initially engage with Microsoft? And how are you ensuring that Microsoft continues to deliver real value for GainX and and vice versa? Yeah, I'm not sure that there is a, a cookie cutter answer to that one. If there was, I think I might start a new business. For me personally, I wanted to work with Microsoft because they're the biggest software company in the world and they work in enterprise software and they're they're really good at it. And so I knew that was a partnership that GainX could benefit from tremendously. So the first step I took was to apply to their accelerator center here in London. I think they have 10 of them around the world, including in their headquarters in Seattle. That definitely gives you a head start. So if you can get into one of those, and of course, with the more startups that there are and the more scale-ups, the more difficult that becomes, but you got to know what you're going to bring to Microsoft. It's not all about what Microsoft brings to you. In fact, 99% of your conversation should be about what you're going to bring to Microsoft because the rest is a no-brainer. So coming through that accelerator, and even before I went in, you know, when they said, what do you want to achieve? 
sure, I want access to the customer base and, you know, the guidance on how to scale an enterprise platform and all those great things. But really, I I want the joint go to market. And I guess I have the good fortune of pretty long background in launching hundreds of software products and managing very, very complex go to market programs across billion dollar companies. So I had a sense of how difficult it would be for a Microsoft to write a go-to-market for you know every single partner. Although they do offer it, it's almost impossible for any big company to internalize that because they have whatever, 20, 30, 40 business units, 90 to 100 different countries that they operate in, 50 different functional heads, and so on and so on. So the thing that I did to help that partnership along the way was co-created the go-to-market with them and never took my hands off the wheel. So I always drive. And with any of my partnerships, I find that the moment I take the hands off the wheels and let them drive, we kind of take pretty big steps back. And the reason is because they've all got day jobs and GainX is nobody's real day job, right? We're one of many exactly. startups. Actually, I wouldn't call us a startup anymore, but you know, we're one of many partners. We're one of many things they're trying to accomplish. And they have aging parents or young kids or older kids and all that stuff too. So the biggest success was clearly explaining to them what we can do for them. We can drive Azure consumption. We're an AI company. So we hit in that sexy AI technology that you get to bring to your customers. We are unbelievably easy to implement. And, you know, they have a, one of their core strategies is to build out their partner ecosystem. So we hit all three of their main drivers. There's a few others that we hit too, that, you know, I, we built some pretty cool calculators and metrics and predictions around. And so they, all of our partners eat that stuff up, makes their life easier. Great advice there. Talking of advice, they say that being a CEO is a really lonely existence. So who do you reach out to for advice? And guidance. Yeah, you know what? It can be really lonely. There were a few times, probably about two years ago now, where I kind of remember having moments. I can smile saying it now, but I wasn't smiling then, thinking, you know, I can remember uh, an evening, just a very short story, where I was in London and I came out of Liverpool Street Station and all the tubes and all the roads and everything was shut down. And it was quite literally pissing rain. It was about one in the morning and I could see my hotel, but I kept getting backed away from it from the police to try to, yeah, it was an interesting night. And I was, it was Friday and I was just so fundamentally bone deep, exhausted. And I leaned against the wall and thought, maybe I should just sleep here. I don't want to go back to my hotel. (laughs) And I realized this is when people lay down. This is the Canadian version now. This is when people just lay down in the snow and they go, this is good. You know, I'm going to warm up in the snow. <laughs> and so it was quite honestly in that moment that I made massive changes in my life to not hit that level of exhaustion again, because I've never had that thought of maybe I should just sleep on the street because I'm too tired to walk the 20 minutes back to my hotel. So I'm where I'm going with that is I've done a lot of work personally myself to make sure I'm not lonely. And it doesn't mean putting myself in constant situations with other people. It means finding ways to be comfortable and taking those really difficult decisions, sometimes by myself, and finding moments where I'm by myself facing really difficult moments that maybe nobody else in the company knows about. And I continue to practice that. I haven't got it perfected. But the other thing that I have done is I have built a group of advisors. I don't make them all board members. 
I think that's a mistake that a lot of founders make. But I have a very extensive group of advisors, some who I reward with beer. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things to do. Okay. Um, yes. And some who, you know, if they stick with me for a number of years, get options in my company. So there's quite a spectrum of how they get paid or rewarded over time. So there's that wide range of ways to reward the advisors that I have around me. Some of it's reciprocal as well, where you know they can seek advice from me as well for the businesses that they may be in. But it's been really, really powerful. And we make sure that we cover off all the bases inside of our company from people who are experts in pricing or negotiations or products or scaling or global expansion or legal or patents, whatever those may be. There's somebody out there in the world who believes in gain X and I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I need some advice on this. So it's been really powerful and it certainly helps me breathe and exhale as a CEO that if I get stuck, there's a pretty good chance I can pick up the phone and uh, and call somebody. But I've also extended that to my management team that they can reach out to the advisors as well. So I know that this podcast isn't meant for me to be shelling out advice, but it's been incredible in my company. I'd recommend it to everybody. That idea of extending the access to the advisory board team to your whole management team, that's an interesting one. How, how does that work in practice? I quite like that idea. So my CTO, phenomenal, talented guy, I've worked with him now, I think over 15 years on and off. He started as my CTO and a couple years into my business, I made him a co-founder. There are some aspects of working within a large enterprise organization of which he's not had experience. And so if I reach out to some of my advisors, you know, one of my advisors who I used to work with worked with Canada's largest software company as the chief architect and head of product strategy. He's a CTO for a huge organization, multi-billion dollar company now out of the US. So he's at the other end of the phone. So if, for example, a customer is calling, wants to do some due diligence or something and is asking questions about how it will fit within their unique ecosystem, it's something that this particular advisor is guaranteed to have the answer for. So he picks up the phone and he's done that many, many times. And it, it, there's other things like, you know, we've been experimenting with value-based pricing instead of just pure licenses. And I've got a number of advisors working with me on that because every customer is a bit unique. And so it, it's been really, really exciting and challenging and having more brain power around that is phenomenal. And then that feeds into the marketing team. So the marketing team might reach out and work with the same people to ask, you know, what are the gems that we want to pull out that push the message that makes the value-based pricing okay? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. You recently had breakfast with Al Gore, and that's someone I have huge admiration for. How was he in person? And if it's not too intrusive, what, what topics did you discuss? That was an astounding day. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share who I had dinner with that evening as well, because it was an interesting moment that I think the universe presented to very different men trying to solve very important problems in the world. So I did meet Al Gore here in London um, for a breakfast with a number of primarily men in the room. I love what he's trying to do. He is incredibly focused, as you know, almost everybody knows, in terms of 
trying to solve for climate change, I think he's done a brilliant job explaining what the economic benefits are of fighting climate change so that it's not just a, you know, hippie, touchy, feel good, we should recycle kind of feeling for people, but to understand that, you know, it's creating jobs and it provides for economic growth in ways that we haven't seen before. So insanely incredible, brilliant speaker. I think um, the only thing that I would say about it, and I do understand that, you know, when you're in those sort of small rooms and crowds and you have a very clear agenda, here is my message. And he happened to be fundraising as well for his fund to invest in green companies. He did stick a little bit to script. So I struggled with not getting more clarity on, okay, so climate change is going to introduce jobs, whereas AI companies are probably going to displace jobs. And I know there's a lot of debate. I'm happy to talk about that as well. But is there any effort to combine these two things so that, you know, the world's a better place? And the answer I got was, you've heard of deep minds, right? It's it's here in the UK. Isn't that great? And um, they do a lot of work in, in AI and they're doing really great things. So I think I, I apologize to Al Gore. Again, absolutely brilliant, but definitely on a script and, a, and on a mission. And I personally think we got more to do to connect, particularly with the reports that have come out over the last couple of weeks. We've got more to do to connect what's happening in climate change right now and what's going to be happening in the next decade for job displacements. Tell me about your dinner, Angelique. All right. So breakfast in London, drive to Heathrow, fly to Zurich. And I had the privilege of having dinner with Professor Mohammed Yunus, who's a Nobel Prize winner for his work in microfinance and has pulled tens of millions of people out of poverty through his work. So another inspiring human being in our world who's dedicated to making our world a better place, both from an economic perspective and a social perspective. What I found interesting was the approach that each of them were taking. And again, I think that for myself, bridging in between those things, looking at ways that I can use our our technology for good, it was a pretty profound day to think about what GainX can do with artificial intelligence to assure that each person is going to understand how they matter in this new economy that um, we've quickly found ourselves within. So we're doing some pretty cool work. We're actually part of a council that's in France now with 16 people around the world that are looking at how do we help the human race enter this new economy without borrowing from our future. I have those two very interesting meetings, conversations directly shaped your product strategy or your roadmap? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, we're already a light company. Just by the nature of what we do and how we build it, we are all over the world from, you know, Argentina to Brazil to Spain to Toronto to the U.S. and so on. And so we are quite focused on maintaining a light footprint from a business perspective and from a climate perspective. The other thing that we now actively talk about is as we're evolving and growing and hiring Are we assuring that we're not doing that at the cost of future? You know, I'm hesitant to say generations because really in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see some pretty significant shifts. We think about what we've saw over even the last three years. Most of us were surprised by things like Trump, Brexit, Cambridge Analytics, and and so on. We've got more, more to come. So the short answer is yes, 
we are quite conscious about what we're doing from not boring from the future. But the thing that I love the most about my team is we are bringing other, we have this other sort of social side of the company where we're bringing experts from around the world ourselves to tackle the problem of how can we help each individual understand how to navigate this new economy so that they feel like they matter. Because if we don't do this piece, forget the fact I can help big global organizations transform. If we can't help those individuals that aren't going to have full-time jobs again, understand why they matter, Trump and Brexit are going to be small problems. So have a great team focused on let's help the big businesses stay in business because they contribute to the economy in pretty profound ways. Things like skating rinks and golf courses, not golf courses, but soccer fields and science centers that we sometimes take for granted. And then those individuals who are going to enter gig economies probably for the remainder of their careers and start to bridge those things. So we're, I'm pretty excited and grateful. It's been an absolute honor having you join us today, Angelique. You've got some profound aims for the business. I'm excited about that. And um, you've shared some really um, unique insights with our, with our audience. So thank you for all of thank that. You. And I'd like to wish you and the whole team at um, GainX awesome success over the next few years. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the time that you took and um, for being such a generous host. Thanks, Angelique. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.